Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is Yogaland. Hi, Jason. I'm back. You're back. It's almost like I, I live upstairs from the recording studio. <laughs> it's almost like you're really close to the host. Yes. We're going to circle back. We've been doing a series on the benefits of different pose categories for beginners. And we've got one more, unless anybody has any special requests out there. We've got one more, which is the category of inversions and their benefits for beginners. And similar to arm balances and backbends, I think this is a, an important and fantastic category of poses to look at for beginners because there are very few other disciplines where you do them Yeah, as adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of kids do gymnastics and tumbling when they're little and they will, they'll, you know, practice them there. But I'm trying to think if, unless you are doing gymnastics as an adult, I'm trying to think if you really do inversions. I don't think so. I don't think there's really a very common scenario, even in other movement modalities. Yeah. You know, you just don't go upside down very much. And posturally going upside down is just, it's just a hallmark of the asana practice. And like it goes so far as to being, you know, shoulder stand Sarvangasana was always considered the the queen of all yoga postures. Sarvangasana, headstand, the king of all yoga postures. I don't necessarily know that I want to continue that lore, but I think that they're very valuable poses getting upside down. And I also want to acknowledge that when I'm working with beginners, like you said, we talked about backbends, we talked about arm balances. When I'm working with beginners compared to those two categories, I'm really conservative when it comes to teaching inversions to beginners, right? And I have a, a kind of an anomalous approach, I would say, that I want to talk about in a moment. But I have a couple of quick things that I want to throw out of why I think they're so valuable. Mm -hmm. The main reason, like the first and foremost reason that I think inversions are so valuable for beginners is that they require focus. They both require focus and they build focus. I understand they're scary for some. I understand they can be really intimidating. They're hard for everyone. As a teacher and as a student, it's easier just to ignore these poses and pretend they don't exist. Um, but when you are working on these poses as a student, you are immaculately and perfectly focused. Mm -hmm. When you're doing backbends and arm balances, you're, you're probably pretty focused, but the mind can wander. When you're doing standing poses your mind can wander pretty easily. When you're doing a little seated hip opener, your mind can wander. But when you're working on some variation of handstand or headstand or forearm balance, you are going to be 100% with yourself in that moment. You are going to be dialed in. And as a yoga teacher, you're also going to be dialed in. It, same thing as a student, as a teacher, like we don't want to, but sometimes we inadvertently phone it in or we're, we're trying to focus, but we're really lapsed and we're thinking about something else when we're teaching a class or we have these little moments. But when your students are working on a version of shoulder stand, you are going to be there. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that this is just such an important thing for us to recognize that these practices are largely about being focused and present-minded and inversions do a superlative job of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Completely. So- Let's talk about physical 
benefits, just in terms of pose category? I know there are many, but are there any big takeaways from this category? I think this is a really tough one because there's so much lore around these poses and there's so much there's so much physiological benefit that is accorded to these, but I wouldn't say that they have sound enough studies to say that you know they're a panacea for all things. So However, when, let, let, let's just pause for a moment and okay. talk address a little bit of the lore. Sure. Just in case people don't know. Yeah. Um, so okay. like you mentioned, is it headstand is the king? or Yeah, yes. headstand is the king, yes. known as the king. Shoulder stand is known as the queen. And I believe it was a Yangar who coined that. Yes. Yeah. Or at least popular. And when it. you look in light on yoga yes. and you look under – you know, the list of benefits, it's like a mile It fixes long. everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. It fixes everything. From, I'm trying to think. From, th- th- from thyroid disease to-, to pituitary gland dysfunction to pretty much, the, I, let, me, let me give the shortcut. It's pretty much said that these fix like virtually every endocrinological problem. Right. And and here's here and I don't want to go there, but I also don't want to like throw shade on it either. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that this is what we can say about them. First of all, they do not reverse our blood flow. Like, I know that's another funny. Blood just that doesn't go doesn't say. it just doesn't like go the other direction all of a sudden. Okay. However. However, so this is right. So so they are super physiologically valuable. But yes. I think I think without getting into specious territory, what we can say is. They facilitate circulation really well, mm-hmm. and they change the gravitational stress on the body, and so they facilitate easier circulation into the upper extremities, right? So it's not really like you're reversing the blood flow or you're changing the blood flow. It's a little bit more like you're facilitating blood flow into the upper extremities, and because you're going upside down, you're also increasing blood pressure. That may or may not be a desirable thing for someone. Right, for your particular situation. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, but because you're going upside down and because there's effort involved, like even shoulder stand, there's some effort involved. So because you're going upside down and there's effort involved, these are uniquely suited to facilitate circulation. And facilitating circulation and facilitating circulation into the upper extremities seems to be a pretty good thing for a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, so again, I, I, I think, I think in yoga, often where we make the error is to overly be overly prescriptive or overly singular and diagnostic, saying X pose fixes Y problem. Right. So, I think with this, we need to stay a little bit more general and say. Facilitating circulation and facilitating circulation to the upper extremities is a really good thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The focusing is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Getting your body to work is a really good thing. Getting your body to work in a novel way mm-hmm. is a really good thing, mm-hmm. right? I think the I think the other thing that we want to kind of throw out in in terms of in terms of benefit is all of these poses are going to be imposing, that sounds like a negative word, but I don't mean a negative. They're all going to be imposing a greater weight load on the shoulders, arms, and upper body. And that both builds strength in the muscles and the tissues, but it might also facilitate a little bit more strength of bone and structure, Mm -hmm. right? 
So you're, you're getting good weight into good places. Um, I think the other thing that, that like calls to mention is with a little bit of practice and skill and a little bit of like good direction, these poses remind you to breathe because they're difficult, because they're novel, because they're different, because they facilitate focus, you might hold your breath. But with a little bit of training, those things can those things are actually reminders mm-hmm. to slow down and smooth out your breath and to focus on what's happening in the current moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I agree that the novelty aspect is really important. And for me, the novelty means or has, has meant over the course of my practice that number one, they're kind of fun to work on because yeah. again, just like arm balances and back bends, you don't get to do put your body in those shapes. Number two, as you mentioned, they force you to focus. And for me, they kind of like it's like a reset on my brain. Like yeah. they're refreshing to my brain. Yeah. They're 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 some people will say, like, oh, turn upside down and it changes your perspective and it sounds a little corny, but it's true. It's just like a, it's so, when you're doing something novel with your body, it's just can be so good for your brain in terms of how it feels. For sure. What about like the empowerment aspect or, you know, I've seen you take so many people up into handstand for the first time, so many people. And I've seen like the fear that they they go through. So how much do you think that's a factor for beginners? I think it's a pretty big factor because, you know, I don't necessarily wish that as a species we are this way, but we we do tend to get inspiration from making progress in something. And I know that when we're talking about progress in the context of yoga, it's complicated because we don't want to be overly material, right? Like, we're just making progress in poses. That, that 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 there's some there's some existential problem with exclusively thinking that way in the context of yoga. But when you do something that you haven't done in a long time, or when you do something that you never thought you could do, or you do something that you know maybe secretly you aspire towards, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Or when you when you just approach a fear and do something that is a little bit scary. Like it's a really big deal. It Mm -hmm. really is. And I I never think about myself as like, I want my students to always know that they're supported and it's okay to opt out of something at the same time, opting into something that you're a little bit scared of is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a really positive thing. And this, the scenario for me where this, this comes up so frequently. It's actually less in beginners' trainings. And even more, I don't travel as much as I used to, but when I would travel and do an arm balance or an inversion workshop, I would always split the room up at some point so that people that were more proficient in handstand and forearm balance and headstand were able to do X, Y, and Z variations. And everyone else that needed more help with those poses would make a line and I would take them up. And man, I it's no exaggeration to say I've taken thousands of people up mm-hmm. in the handstand, and people are stoked on it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's just it feels really it feels like you've really accomplished something. Mm-hmm. You know, and and here's the thing: like 
on the surface, doing handstand, if you've never done handstand, is it's really not that big of a thing. But doing something that you want to do, doing something that you're scared of, doing something that you're intimidated of, doing something that you thought was like years past your ability to do, well, those things are big deals, mm-hmm. right? And then one more quick thing before we move on, which is just going back to the novel stresses. It's really clear that using your body in varied ways is really valuable. Doing stressing your body in different ways at different angles with different degrees of intensity is incredibly valuable. And going upside down, I think the other thing that it that it it really facilitates is spatial awareness, proprioception. I remember you know, Rodney was my teacher. Those of you that, that don't know Rodney, Rodney was like huge into big statements, right? He would just make like a big statement. And and I remember him saying, when he was talking about headstand and he was talking about, you know, for most people, it was going to take them at least six months of regularly doing headstand to be completely oriented upside down so that they could do the pose articulately in the middle of the room and start to add variations, right? And and what I what I kind of realize is in the same way that stressing your bones and other tissues in novel ways is valuable, stressing your I don't know if stress is the right word, but perceiving yourself differently putting yourself in a different physical scenario so that your nervous system and your brain have to interpret spatial awareness and information differently. These are all just so valuable. And and I don't know exactly how to calculate their value. Yeah. You you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. and that's why I always feel like it's a little bit specious, but I just don't think, I I think that, that the way that these poses spatially orient us and do physically novel things for us, I think is really different than any other pose category. Like it's, it's like, it's just an elevation compared to any other pose category. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into the actual poses you want to take us through today. Yeah. There's something important first. Because I'm going to be a little bit more brief with the poses, and I'm going to remind everyone that shortly after we release this episode, I'm also releasing an episode of Yoga Teacher's Companion on Jason Crandall Yoga YouTube that's going to teach you how I actually teach these poses that we're going to talk about. It's a a 30-minute episode, and it's going to like walk through all of these things. Great. But what I don't talk about there and what I do talk about here is this, I would say it's a little bit of a sequencing or a teaching anomaly that I have when it comes to teaching inversions, which is this. In most scenarios, you use easier poses to prepare for harder poses. You sequence easier poses before you sequence harder poses. And you use an easier pose to teach a harder pose. But when it comes to inversions, I 100% flip the script on this. Headstand and shoulder stand are the easier 
inversions to do. So when we think about, there's really four primary inversions. I mean, you could argue down dog and handstand. There's plenty of poses that have an inverted quality to them. But when we're talking about like the classic inversions in yoga, we really have four and a bonus. We have handstand, forearm balance, headstand, shoulder stand, and then our bonuses, Viparita Karani, legs up the wall. And each one of those poses, of course, has variations, right? But when we look at those four primary inversions, the easiest one for most people to get into is shoulder stand. But of all of the inversions, shoulder stand puts the neck in the most compromised position. Yeah. Then we have the second easiest one for most people to get up into, which is headstand. headstand. And ironically, which version of headstand is the easiest for most people to do? Tripod, Tripod. headstand which is way more vulnerable for the neck than Shirshasana 1, okay? So I, I kind of want to talk this out a little bit, and just but just kind of throw that out there that shoulder stand is the easiest inversion for most to get into. Headstand is the second. The version of headstand that is easier to get into is tripod headstand for most. And tripod headstand, the hands don't offload any of the weight that's being transmitted through the neck. So the two easiest inversions to do are by a mile, the more dangerous inversions mm-hmm. to do. And, and I never, you know, like I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be fear mongering because. No, but I mean, it's the reality is your neck is vulnerable in those poses. Yes. That's just the reality. It's the reality. And here's the thing is, Right now, we are talking about people who don't already know how to do these poses. Right. Right. So I'm not saying that no one should do headstand or shoulder stand and that they're they're dangerous. What I'm saying is I bear a very substantial responsibility when it comes to teaching someone something. And in in contemporary yoga, you know, it's, it's common that pretty much everything is all levels and we don't have, like we're not used to in modern yoga thinking about prerequisites. Right? Yeah, no, there's technique that yes. that is required right. for these poses. There's big time technique. And so and so what I what I really want people to understand is this concept. I don't want my students to bear weight on their neck or head if they don't have the strength, skill, and technique to support that weight with their arms and shoulders first. So I actually am pretty insistent in most, there's always some exceptions, right? There's like, someone's been doing shoulder stands since they first saw it with Lilius and you in 1979, and they feel amazing in shoulder stand, but they don't do handstand, fine. There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of like exceptions. But for the most part, starting from scratch, I want someone to be able to do handstand at the wall and forearm balance at the wall before I want them to do headstand at the wall and before I want them to do shoulder stand. So the progression there, that is the opposite progression of accessibility, right? We're going from least accessible to most accessible, right? But we're also going from the least likely to injure a neck Mm -hmm. to the most likely to injure a neck. And so I have to really be... I, I will acknowledge I am more conservative than most on this topic, but I, I think that this is a really important step ladder to understand. Okay. So yeah. you would start 
by introducing handstand first. Yeah. So okay. let's take up that topic. And these are the things that in the teacher's companion I'll break down. So to me, when I'm teaching beginners, there's really two versions of handstand. One is a version of handstand and one only kind of is. So the first version of handstand is half handstand at the wall. And I think people are really familiar with this, right? You don't you don't have to set it up like this, but kind of the easiest way to gauge it is you just sit facing the wall with legs straight and take the bottom of the feet to the wall. And that, that kind of is going to tell you your distance from the wall, right? Then you just put your hands where your hips are and just turn around, do a short facing down dog with your heels against the wall, and then walk the feet up so they're at the height of the hips. And when you're doing this, you're making a 90 degree angle at your hip joint. So your handstand, you're enhancing your upper body. So your hips are stacked over your ribs, your ribs are over your shoulders, shoulders are over your hands, and your thighs are parallel to the ground because your feet are at the wall. Yeah. You'll yeah. see beginners like either walk their feet up too high. Yes. Because it feels scary to get their hips directly over their shoulders. Well, it's also harder. Or you'll see them kind of walk their hand into their hands forward at the last minute. Yes. But you're saying look for the 90 degree angle. Yeah, yeah. look for the 90 degree angle. But but what you were saying right there, I it's actually to me, if it's a beginner, it's okay. So I would say that your starting place is feet at the height of the hips. But taking the feet higher than the hips is easier. Mm -hmm. It's less stressful on the shoulders, so it's totally fine to do. Okay. The other thing that you can do from there, so I'm not thinking about this as a separate pose, but the other thing that you can do from there, if you're feeling pretty good and confident, is keep one foot at the wall and take the other leg vertical, right? So you just, you just keep one, so both feet are on the wall, right? And then you just keep one foot there, and then you take the other foot off the wall and you just reach it straight up towards the ceiling. So it's just taking one, okay. Yeah. Like it's hard, that's a lot harder. Well, so here's the thing. Okay, everyone, I want you to imagine that you are standing up. Like forget all of this. Imagine you're standing up and you reach your arms towards your towards the ceiling. Think about how demanding that is for your body. And then now think about standing up, bending over 90 degrees at the hip joint and reaching your arms forward like you're doing Ardha Uttanasana with the arms reaching forward, which one of those is more physically taxing? I don't know. The second one, yeah, being bent over 90 degrees is way more physically taxing. So the more of your body and handstand you have vertical, it's actually easier. It's less stressful for your body. So taking one leg and reaching it up towards the ceiling actually makes you it creates less stress in the body and it makes the pose actually a little easier, but it can be a little mentally scarier. Mm -hmm. So that's where that's where I like to have people keep both feet at the wall until they're mentally comfortable to raise one leg towards the ceiling. Okay. Yeah. The second is not handstand at all. It is teaching students how to swing and hop. So it's teaching people handstand transitions without actually doing handstand. And when I when I break this down, especially if I'm if I'm teaching this in person, I, I always like I always just try to give this example, okay? And the example of golf comes up, but you can use like pretty much anything, especially any racket sport. Imagine that 
every time, like imagine you've never played golf, right? And you're just learning a golf swing. And each time you swing, you're trying to drive the ball as far as you possibly can. Like you're just trying to hit it a thousand yards or you've never played tennis. And so you're learning the basics of swinging and you're just trying to like hit the ball as hard as you can. Are you likely to create a good swing in those situations? The answer is no, it's going to be terrible because you're working too hard. You're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to get to this focal point instead of just relaxing and learning a technique. And so I actually really think people need to be taught the swing and hop to handstand with absolutely no interest, pressure, or desire to get into handstand. Mm -hmm. Because in this situation, then then you actually learn the swing and hop, and then you can build on that. Because it it really is a technique. Like I think that's the last thing that I want to make sure I throw out about these poses before we go on to the variations of forearm balance. Um, These poses are technique-driven. They really are. Strength and flexibility is always... Uh, very, they're, they're always important variables for sure, but inversions are more technique driven than we think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the last one is the doing the pose with the teacher support, right? Because that helps you build the technique. If, like it kind of scaffolds you until you have the technique. Yes. So that's the final version. In that version is not something I break down in the video because I, I, it's this kind of, a little bit more nuanced, mm-hmm. but if it's possible, yes. And I think the the final thing that I would say about that is, you know, you, you use the word scaffolding. Sometimes we're trying to learn a set of skills that are complicated and dynamic enough that we can't do them all at the same time. We need to learn them separately. And this is something, you know, with my sports background and your dance background, I think you and I intuitively understand that like for you, it was probably choreography. For me, it's technique that, that, you know, in sports and the other things that I've been involved with, you don't always just try to do everything all out, all in at once. You break down things into little increments and you drill those increments. You break things down into components. You drill those components and then over time you let them come together, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so being in half handstand, building the strength and the awareness of being upside down, doing the swing and hops without trying to get there, just getting better at swinging and hopping, going up with a teacher, all of those are separate skills that over time can come together into the fruition of the pose, especially everyone when you're learning it as an adult. Mm-hmm. When you're learning some of these things, if you're like six years old and in gym, gymnastics, you're just going to get thrown into the fire and you know that's that. Mm-hmm. But when we're learning these things as an adult, we really have to think about them as, as, uh, as complementary learning phases. Yeah. Do you ever get any strong hit that you don't want a student to try full handstand yet? And do you kind of intercede or do you feel like it's once you've covered these bases, um, you just let them experiment? Um, the thing with handstand is it's pretty Mm self-limiting. Okay. So, so when it, so when it comes to half hands at the wall, it's pretty accessible unless Mm -hmm. someone has significant elbow issues, shoulder issues, or wrist issues. Mm -hmm. So there might be mechanical reasons why a body 
just isn't, you know, this, these poses aren't for them. Right. Um, same thing with swing and hop, like the swing and hop is going to be one of these things that mostly is developing motor coordination, but let's say someone doesn't have any ailment or injury or condition that's going to like intercede in them going upside down. Then if that's the case, I'm happy for them to work on getting into full handstand because they, they just may or may not get there depending on whether or not they've built those skills. So that's where it ends up being very self-limiting. Okay. Okay. And then you mentioned you also teach forearm balance before headstand and shoulder stand. So I do, what's the approach to teaching that pose? I do. And what I would even say is handstand is, I don't want to say, the word that's coming to my mind, it's not the right word. Okay. But I'm going to say it anyway, because it's stuck in there. I mean, let me say the phrase and then let me back off it. Handstand is almost extraneous. So I don't mean that, but what I mean is forearm balance is going to do everything head, excuse me, forearm balance, especially the way that I'm going to propose it is going to give you everything that handstand is going to give you. Mm -hmm. It's easier to get into and it doesn't have the same kind of wrist complications. Mm -hmm. So totally stand behind handstand. However, if it's, if it's, not negotiable for some reason. Forearm balance is not only a like a good surrogate, but it's just going to give you everything that's that pose is going to do, and it's going to set you up for a headstand that much better because there's so much similarity between forearm balance and Shirshasana one. And really, again, it's not it's not completely the pose just yet. But I would say the first version of forearm balance, if you will, is what I call shorter dolphin pose. So I really have two versions of dolphin pose I like to do, longer dolphin and shorter dolphin. In longer dolphin, you can just think about, you essentially have the same orientation in your body as you would in down dog, except for your forearms are on the ground and your fingers are interlaced, Okay. So in both versions of dolphin, the forearms are down, the fingers are interlaced, the outer wrists are strongly pressing down. In the longer version of dolphin, which I think is a great pose to include in this process, in the longer version of dolphin, you have the same angles that you have in down dog, and it's a little bit more for opening the shoulders. It's going to lengthen the lats, it's going to lengthen the triceps, it's going to broaden the shoulder blades, it's a little bit stretchier. So the longer version is just more Base between the feet and the and the arms, or the, is it the feet and the elbows? Yeah. Okay, but the the hand position, the arm position, is the same. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Now, shorter dolphin. This will, if if it doesn't make sense already, it will make sense now. In shorter dolphin, you walk your feet in towards your elbows, and you elevate your pelvis so your pelvis is more vertically stacked over your ribs and over your shoulders. So in this shorter version, you're really trying to create an inversion from the pelvis through the ribs, through the shoulders, and into the elbows. You're really starting to get more upside down. The more upside down you get, however, the more this becomes a strength-generating pose. When you have that longer stride, it's nicer, it's stretchier, you can be there for a longer increment. But when you shorten up the stride, you're really starting to physically replicate the position and also the demands of being upside down. And would you say for people who 
uh, are a little more hamstring hamstring challenged, if they are walking the feet in to do the short dolphin, should they bend the knees or do you think they should just have do the longer dolphin. I think they should walk the feet in as close as they can. And when their hamstrings become an encumbrance, just stop there. The reality is if you bend, here's the thing. If you bend your knees because your hamstrings are tight, bending the knees kind of pulls the hips down and that makes the pose really cumbersome. Um, When I first started doing this pose many years ago, my hamstrings were really tight and and they really were a limiting factor for me. So it, it's it's nice that you bring it up. So you just step the feet in as close to the elbows as you can. The, the next thing I want to say is this also leads us into essentially the final version of dolphin, which is starting to get closer and closer to headstand and also closer and closer to actual forearm balance, which is you take this shorter dolphin and you raise one leg towards the ceiling. So now you're starting to get a leg, the pelvis, the ribs, and the shoulders all vertically stacked over the elbows. Right, okay. So this is a lot like that phase that some of you might have taken where you were in half handstand at the wall, and you took one foot off the wall and raised it up. I wouldn't say that raising one leg towards the ceiling makes the shorter version harder. I think they're they're pretty much equally demanding, but it does give you a nice feeling of getting upside down. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the hands here are in in this pose are dolphin hands. So the dolphin hands that dolphin sounds hands. really odd. Yeah. <laughs> Human dolphin hands. What am I saying? Yeah. Fingers interlaced. Yeah. And outer wrists pressing down. Which is great. Because that also preps you for headstand. Yeah. When you take the two, so imagine you're doing this pose kind of like a conventional sphinx and you're doing all of these things with the palms facing down on the ground and the hands separated, you're going to have a much more difficult time because every time or any time I should say you interlace the fingers, you're joining the two sides of the body. And when you join the two sides of the body together, everything gets stronger. You create a stronger frame. And so by interlacing the fingers and pressing the forearms down, you have a a stronger mechanical framework in the arms and shoulders, which is going to allow you to flex the shoulders a little bit more deeply, which is the primary action that's happening in the shoulder joints in these poses. And you can just stay in the pose a little bit longer. That being said, I, I, I don't... I don't know if I kind of already said this, but this is a physically demanding pose. Like no one's going to, I want to equate this pose to locust pose in that it's one of these poses that it really builds this incredibly valuable strength for the body. But in the short term, it's not very fun. It's not super satisfying. And there's a lot of output. So it's an accessible thing to do, but there's a lot of energy expenditure. And so as a yoga teacher, I think you have to qualify the value of this and just acknowledge, hey, this is a tough thing to do, but this is going to build the strength that's really going to help us get upside down in a much safer, more sustainable way over time. Right. Okay. And so just to clarify, when they do kick up to forearm balance, you want the fingers interlaced. I do. Okay. And and this is, okay, so let's let's get to, we're, we're kind of creeping into headstand, right. which is our third one. So, but let me say this, which is 
in the same way that you worked on handstand transitions, the swing and hop, that exact same process and set of techniques is going to be practiced in dolphin. So essentially you want to do this short one-legged dolphin and little swing and hops. If you have practiced them in handstand, then practicing them in forearm bounce is probably going to be even easier. And this is often the first pose where people get upside down of their own volition Mm -hmm. because the effort to get upside down is a little bit lower in in this forearm balance variation than it is handstand. Mm -hmm. So if you've kind of drilled the technique, you can start to work on the technique here. And then essentially what's happening is you're going to start to get up all the way up into what we can call essentially either another version of forearm balance or the first version of headstand. And what I like to call this is headless headstand. It's essentially forearm balance with the fingers interlaced or headstand with the head hovering just a little bit above the ground. Right. So no headless because the head is not pressing into the ground. It's lifted off the ground just slightly. Just slightly. And and again, this goes back to the initial sentiment of, I understand this is a slower, more demanding path than just doing it with your head on the floor. But it's also ensuring that you have that you're developing the strength to support your entire body weight without having to load your cervical spine. Mm-hmm. And and I think that in the modern era, I, I I just think I think we have to be honest with the potential risk of neck injury and to say, I, you know, personally, I don't want that in my room. I don't want that for anyone. I'd rather someone go through a little bit of a slower, more laborious protocol than maybe get up prematurely and risk their neck. Okay. Yeah. So with this hybrid sort of forearm balance headstand pose, yeah. they are kicking up at the wall. They're kicking up at the wall. So imagine I'm in a short dolphin. My knuckles are going to be pretty much touching the wall. I'm going to be that close to the wall. And then I'm going to get upside. I'm going to get into that shorter version. I'm going to raise one leg and maybe that's where I stop. Or maybe I just from there work on my swing and hops, or maybe I work on my swing and hops till I actually get up. And if you get up, your butt and your heels are going to get to the wall. So you'll be ever so slightly leaned into the wall, but just barely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so this is also a really good opportunity to to split the room or to communicate to the students, hey, there's a couple of different possibilities here. Some of you, if you don't feel comfortable swinging and hopping, I just want you to work on short dolphin. If you feel comfortable swinging and hopping, but you're not trying to get to headstand, to forearm balance, just do a couple of baby swing and hops and just take your time with it. There's no urgency. Those of you that have been working on this for a while or feel a little bit like you got it, just give a little bit more boost and you might come there or raise your hand and I'll come and support you up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great. The, the final really brief thing I want to say about this is once someone is up with their head off the ground and their butt is at the wall and their heels are at the wall, they might ever so slightly lower down and let the top of the head touch mm-hmm. so that they're getting the feeling of headstand. Now, now you're in a proper headstand, but- I'm going to make up a number. I'm going to say 
at this point, maybe we keep 90 to 95% of the weight in the forearms and only just that remaining percentage in the head itself. I think that's a really smart way to teach it. I mean, because when you kick up to headless headstand, your arms are, you know, it's so hard to get the action of the arms and shoulders um, in this pose and to really work and take the weight there. Especially, I don't know, for me, I have a pretty small rib cage, you know, smaller shoulders, bigger hips. So that really forces you to use those muscles and the muscular engagement. And then you're just slightly lowering the head. I I think that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And then we're going to see the same really conservative approach to shoulder stand. So the way that I like to teach shoulder stand is essentially supported bridge pose with the block and the legs vertical. So this is kind of a a hybrid version of shoulder stand meets supported bridge meets legs up the wall, Vipritikrani, legs up the wall with no wall, right? Yeah. Like, because you're working the legs. So what we do for this is we we just have a block and it's got to be a firm enough block that it can support your body weight. So you can sometimes like if it's a, if you have a like kind of a softer uh, foam block, you can use two next to each other. I've done that plenty of times. So you lay on your back, like you're going to do bridge, you lift into bridge, and then you slide a block between, like underneath you, so it's supporting the back of the pelvis, the sacrum. Once the sacrum is supported and your arms are grounding, so you take the arms just like you would take them for shoulder stand, and right, you get those arms to come underneath you and externally rotated. Then you bend the knees, take the feet off the floor, and straighten the legs up towards the ceiling actively. The nice thing about this is you, you it's shoulder stand. It's a full-blown shoulder stand. It's just not completely vertical. I love this pose. It, it's I'll really nice. It's it's really nice I because there's there's two the, the two reasons that this makes the pose less precarious for a new student. Number one, your neck doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to um, flex to the same amount. Because you're not as vertical, your pelvis is essentially over your elbows, not over your neck and shoulders. So your neck is not as flexed. So that's number one. And number two, you're not bearing nearly as much weight on the shoulders or the neck. You're because you're not as vertical, the neck is in and is at an easier angle with less load. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I don't like I don't want to say shoulder stand is a is a dangerous pose that no one should do, right? If it was, I wouldn't teach it in any capacity. However, I have to know that what we are risking when we are doing shoulder stand is it's a much substan- it's a much more substantial risk than you know, if we stress the knee or the lower back or the wrist in some other pose. What can go wrong with the neck is is could be life changing to be honest. And again, I, I don't. You and I are not, especially in the modern yoga situation, not like fear based teachers. But I just don't see any urgency to learning this pose. Mm-mm. And to be honest with you, if if I if I had a global show of hands of people that genuinely enjoy and feel good in shoulder stand, I'm guessing it's much lower than 50%. 
Especially if it was if we if we were there for more than a minute, right? And so I, but I think part of that is it's, it was just so hastily taught for so long. Mm-hmm. So I, for this pose, I'd rather be much more conservative, give the feel for the pose, let you get upside down, mitigate the vast amount of risks that are possible in neck and shoulders, and learn this to- this pose slowly and progressively over time, and and have a, a better go of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my opinion. I I don't know how you feel about this, but um. When we learned it, we tended to learn it from Iyengar teachers, and there was a lot of time put into getting the props correct. Yes. And the teacher would go around and adjust the props for each particular person and body, right? For the length of your neck, for the curve of your neck, for how strong you were and able to lift your hips up. And um, so I think it it's a very personalized pose. That's what it needs to be. Yeah. Um, to yeah, and so that takes time. And most vinyasa classes don't afford us that time anymore. Most Agreed. most students don't want to take that time at this point. But this pose with the doing it on the block is fabulous. It feels so good. And sometimes I'll admit, like I don't the fussiness of the props and shoulder stand used to drive me crazy. So this is much less fussy and gives you much of the same benefit. Totally. Yeah. I, I probably get you the exact same benefits. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then there's also the alternative of just doing legs up the wall, right? Totally. Burrito Karani. Totally. Which is like a desert island pose for me. Agreed. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So make sure to check out the companion to see a little bit more of a breakdown on at on all of these poses or most of the variations that we talked about today. Great. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I have sequences to go with these poses on our website. So you can go to the show notes page and I will put links to all of these sequences. Yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 313, 313. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for leaving reviews. It helps other people find the podcast. We appreciate you. Until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.